0: Uh, You know, just as part of the the kind of weird season that we're in, you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and my heart is just broken thinking of going into this special time of the year uh, and not being able to gather together for Easter and Palm Sunday and stuff. But next Sunday is also a communion Sunday, and so if, if you happen to be out in town doing some shopping this week, and you, you should probably add to your shopping list some grape juice and some crackers or something like that. And um, again, it's not, it's not optimal, but nothing in these days are. But if you can grab some communion supplies for your home use, we, <laughs> we will try to put together some kind of online communion service. And uh, also, uh, we've upgraded our CCLI license and we're waiting on some, com- some equipment stuff to show up that will help us uh, start adding music to our times together also. Uh, this past week, as I called um, different people within the congregation, I'm working my way through a list, and so if I haven't gotten to you yet, please be patient with me. I hope to give you a call sometime soon. Um, but you can always call me as well. That's the other side of it, you is uh, don't necessarily wait for me to call you. Please give me a call. would love to hear from you. But lots of people have, and when I've talked to them, have offered to help in some way. There's like, if you know of anybody who needs anything, just let me know. I've heard that a lot this past week. Uh, which speaks to me again about the rare spirit of service here at State Road. And uh, just love you guys for being that kind of people. But the other side of that is, is if you have a need, uh, let me know or Pastor Andrew know. We would love to get you hooked up with somebody who might be in a position to help, whatever that help might be. So just let me know. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 46. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 46. Uh, Psalm 46 is a psalm designed as an expression of thanks to God for deliverance. It's worded as a general testimony to God's faithfulness to be with His people in the midst of their troubles. It was probably written in response to some specific work of deliverance, but it's kind of worded in a general way. And I selected this text for this morning because I believe it contains certain truths that we need to hear this week specifically. I, I'm, I say that because my and I'm hesitant here to try and offer any predictions about what the weeks ahead will hold, but a quick survey of headlines demonstrates that there are lots of different opinions out there about how long this season is going to last, how bad it will get before it is all said and done, and what the ripple effects will be in our community, in the economy, in church families. And I'm just like you. I don't really know what to expect. Uh, The future is full of question marks. And some of them are pretty ominous looking, maybe. However, I am reminded of that famous quote in the book of Esther, where Mordecai says to his niece, Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And church, I just really feel very convicted in my heart That we have been called into existence in the midst of this place in these days for such times as these. This is what we were made for. And I don't want to be an alarmist, and I would absolutely love to be proven wrong. But it does appear to me that before we come out the other side of this, things are likely to get significantly worse. The disease will continue to spread. People we know are likely to fall ill and maybe even die. And the economic impact of the shutdown will be felt in the communities we minister to. Early church historian and bishop of the city of Caesarea, Eusebius, he wrote about the early church and how it responded to the plague in its time. He wrote, All day long, some of them, the Christians that is, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. He went on to write further that because of their compassion the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. A few decades after Eusebius, the last pagan emperor, Julian, recognized that the Christian practice of compassion in the midst of a crisis was one cause behind the explosive growth of the church in the first century Roman world. In a letter to a pagan priest, he said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the Christians observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And to another, he wrote, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And the challenge in front of us, again, is how do we participate in the coordinated effort to stop the spread of this virus, which is wise and good. I encourage you to stay home and to take your part in stopping the spread of this virus and to, and to flatten the curve as, we are very, as we've heard from so many different news outlets and healthcare professionals But how do we do that without ceasing to spread the gospel? How do we stay true to our calling to reach out and engage with non-believers in this season of isolation and distancing? And again, we're in uncharted territory in that respect. Uh, Ian White, he wrote a poem, the words of which were put to a song, but one of the stanzas goes like this. What lies across the waves may cause my heart to fear. Will I survive the day? Must I leave what's known and dear? A ship that's in the harbor is still and safe from harm, but it was not built to be there. It was made for wind and storm. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know, I believe with all my heart from studying the Bible and reading God's heart towards his people, that the church was made for wind and storm. And right now feels a bit like the calm before the storm. I think we all feel, I listened to one podcast this week that described these days we're living in as the low hum of menace. (laughs) And uh, I I liked that description. Uh, But there is just this sense that something's coming. It's like the whole world is about to vomit somehow. And it's about to happen here. And right now just feels like the calm before the storm. Whatever is coming down the pipe, it, it will be here shortly. But right now, for these days, we're not aware of any known cases in our community. And a lot of the measures that are being taken seem largely um, an effort to out of an abundance of caution. But I do think that there are days coming in which we're going to have to stand up and recognize that the church was made for wind and storm. And we don't serve God well by not engaging in the midst of the crisis. Psalm 46 opens with a declarative statement. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the rest of the psalm then goes on to illustrate and expand on these three precious truths. That He is our refuge, that God is our strength, and that He is a very present help in trouble. And using Psalm 46 as our guide, we're going to explore these three truths this morning. He is our refuge, our strength, and our help. And this is a fitting way to address this current situation. Because as we look back, we are reminded of God's faithfulness in the past. And as we look ahead, we are reminded that no matter what the coming days might throw at us, we have a refuge and a strength and a help in God. Perhaps the picture used most often in Scripture to describe the relationship between God and His people is that of a shepherd and His sheep. And in Psalm 46.1, we see the heart of our shepherd God, who described Himself as the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. For a sheep, they have no refuge or strength or help other than the shepherd. The shepherd is those things personally to the sheep. And when I read that our God is a very present help in trouble, I have in my mind's eye a picture of a shepherd who is always watching over his flock and who is eager to prove himself faithful to those who have placed their trust in him. So let's explore these three ideas. I'll try and be brief here as we go through, although that's not my strong suit, as you know. The first is that God is our refuge. The Hebrew word for refuge is makasa, literally means a place of trust or hope or shelter where one flees for protection. Job 5.7 says that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. In John 16.33, Jesus himself said that in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise. Then he adds, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Life is full of trouble. And because it is full of trouble, human beings, you, me, everybody, all of us, are continuously in need of and seeking for a refuge, a shelter from the storm. And the history of mankind is littered with loads and loads of cautionary tales about people who sought out various forms of refuge that ultimately failed them. When I was a police officer, there was a woman in the town where I worked And uh, her boyfriend was named Choo Choo. That was his nickname on the street. I actually don't know his real name. I only (laughs) ever knew him by Choo Choo. But he he went to prison and he was a bad guy and she was afraid of him. And she knew that when he got out of prison, he would come looking for her. And so she went into a bar one night and found the biggest, baddest guy that she could find. And she got together with him as a protection against Choo Choo when he got out of prison. And when Choo Choo did get out of prison, uh, he came and he found that man's house and he flipped his truck over in the street. <laughs> and that that was the end of that relationship. And so we need to be careful about what kind of refuge we look for. I remember that story and uh, just I was really amazed that he could flip a truck over, if you can believe that. But I think that sometimes we look for refuge in things that just fail us eventually. Some might try and become a hermit. Others might seek refuge in the good opinion of others. Some look to the government. Some look for refuge in other belief systems. The list goes on and on and on. We all have this thing that we're fearing, and we're all casting about for a refuge. And all those refuges might help for a time, but they will all eventually disappoint. And in Psalm 46, we're told that God is our refuge. It's his desire to be that to us personally. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses were the ultimate symbol of military might when David wrote Psalm 20. But David, who was a warrior king, did not find his strength in those things. He put his trust in the name of the Lord. God was his strength, and we would do well to follow his example. But still, we often seek refuge in places other than God. And when we prefer something to God, there's a word for that. It's called idolatry. Sometimes we might not even be aware of idolatry in our hearts until our false places of refuge are threatened. And sometimes I think God threatens our false places of refuge in order to reveal to us our idolatry. Uh, back in 2013, Sarah and I lived in a small mountain community in Southern California. And that year, there was a wildfire that threatened to wipe that town right off the map. It eventually consumed over 30,000 acres and circled the town on three sides. Later, I would go on to pastor a church as it went through hurricane, a hurricane in Florida. And during those two crises... Uh, when people were very frightened and there was a threat, threatening their town, their livelihood, their families, their homes, I, here are some things I had noticed about God's people during those times. I heard a lot of people say, it's just stuff. <laughs> they, I saw that God's people had a loose grip on their things. I saw Christians reaching out to care for one another. I would call down through the people in the church, and very often when I would call somebody, they would tell me other people who had called them to see how they were doing and what they could do to help. I became aware that God's people are a praying people. In the midst of a time like that, they were a people who turned to God in prayer, and I found that they were a thankful people. Very often, they would talk about the blessings in the midst even of the bad times. I was personally very blessed and encouraged to witness the way God's people responded to those crises. And I was proud for them to be my people. I was proud of their witness in the midst of those times. But let me tell you also that not all Christians responded that way. It was evident from the things some people said that the wildfire and the hurricane were threatening false places of refuge that they had built in their hearts. And in their prayers for God to deliver them from the fire or from the hurricane, I believe that they were, in effect, asking God to spare their idols. God, please don't kick out that crutch. I have been leaning on. Usually, when tragedy and disaster threaten us, God has something larger in view than our comfort. God's desire, however, is not to spare His church discomfort. Remember, as I said before, in in this life, the church shares in the cross of Christ. And in the life to come, we will share in his crown. We're called to take up our cross and follow him. So no, his desire is not to spare the church discomfort. His desire is for the church to put who he is on full display in the midst of our trials. And to represent him well during those times by being a blessing and a help to those who are hurting and in need. In his commentary on Psalm 46, John Calvin said, Our faith is really and truly tested only when we are brought into very severe conflicts. But it is natural when scary things threaten us that we experience fear. And when we experience fear, we start casting about for a refuge. And in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 46, they tell us something about the refuge that Christians find in their God. In verses 2 and 3, it says this, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Therefore, we will not fear. This is a remarkable statement because of the horrifying imagery that follows. The writer of Psalm 46 uses fantastical language to describe a worst-case scenario. "...of what planet Earth could throw at us. The Earth is depicted as falling out of orbit. God's command at creation that the Earth and water be separated is rescinded with catastrophic results. The mountains, which are symbolic in biblical imagery of strength and stability, are shaken by incomprehensibly powerful earthquakes that cause them to tumble into the oceans." where tsunamis wash over the top of them and they dissolve like sugar cubes. Tell me, where would we seek refuge if the earth fell out of orbit? Or if there was an earthquake of such shocking power that mountains fell into the sea? What inner inner resources would you draw on in the event of those things? What service or what branch of the government would we call on for relief in such an event? But it begins with these words, therefore we will not fear, even if those sorts of things were to happen. God is such a refuge to his people that they can be delivered into eternal life through such events as these. It is because of this perspective that God's people find such a refuge in God and in his promises. In Hebrews thirteen five, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Romans 8.39 says that in all creation, not even the earth-giving way can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is our refuge. He's also our strength. In verses 8 through 11, it says this, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I think one of the most seductive refuges, the most seductive of false refuges really, Is that of self sufficiency? God says that He wants not only to be our refuge, but also our strength. Here is something that's interesting about strength, at least as it's presented in the Bible. For the Christian, the weaker we become, the stronger we are. The less we depend on ourselves, and the more we lean into and are dependent upon God the stronger our position becomes. And we see this again if we think of ourselves in relation to God as sheep in relations to a shepherd. If you have a headstrong sheep that thinks, I got this. They're not strong. They're actually the weakest and most vulnerable of the flock. You could take the littlest, weakest, most anemic, sickly sheep, and it is stronger, it is safer if it is sitting in the shepherd's lap than one very strong ram who thinks it can go off into the hills and do battle with bears and stuff. Uh, that's just pure hubris, and it's not a strength for the sheep to think in that way. And that's very similar to our position as followers of God. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine, it says, "'But he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we come to the end of what we can do in our flesh, it is often only then that we experience God's power in our lives. A.C. Dixon once said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do, but when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. And I believe this is what is being communicated in verse 10, which, by the way, is the only verse in Psalm 46 where God speaks directly to us from the page of Scripture. In verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. That word for be still is Rapha which means to cease and desist what you are doing, to stop. And something I want to be very clear about here, I think this verse is one of those that sometimes is quoted in a way that's not aware of what's being meant here. What God is saying here is is he's not calling us to permanent inaction. He's not saying just sit back, I'm going to do everything. You don't do. He's never saying be still permanently is what I'm trying to say. He's saying, be still and know that I am God before you go out and act. And that's why I think this is a message for us this week, specifically. Uh, If the projections from the CDC and Dr. Fauci and all these folks are correct, in the coming weeks, we're going to know people who become ill. Possibly people we know will die of the coronavirus. Coronavirus. We'll begin to feel the effects of the shutdown in our local economy. In the days ahead, our church is going to be called upon to venture out into wind and storm as representatives of God's people in the midst of this time. And so right now, the command today from this chapter, this this verse, is for us to be still and know that He is God. Not still permanently, but let's... Steady, still ourselves, and dwell upon who God is. I have always had trouble with this verse, though, because it does say, Be still, and we want to do something. We might say, What about the saying that God helps those who help themselves? This saying is often mistakenly thought to be in the Bible, but actually it first appears in one of Aesop's fables between 620 and 564 BC. In the fable, a man's wagon got stuck in a muddy road, and he prayed for Hercules to help. And Hercules appeared and said, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. And the moral given by Aesop was that the gods help those that help themselves. And although there may be some ways in which that moral is correct, in the main, the Bible teaches the opposite. God helps the helpless. Isaiah 25.4 declares, For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Romans 5.6 tells us, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In terms of salvation, we are all completely helpless. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. (laughs) Still, though, if I needed a job, I shouldn't just sit on my couch and trust that God will send employers knocking at the door. Although God is certainly capable of doing that, it doesn't seem consistent with how He normally operates as we see Him working in the Bible. In fact, that sounds to me more like testing God than truly operating within His will and from a place of faith. Some Christians I have known actually take this kind of approach to seeking God's will, though. And I find a quote from A.J. Gordon helpful here. It says, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. In this scenario, if I was out of work, I should first pray to God about my need for a job. And I should be still and know that He's God. I should dwell upon who God is as a provider as a God who is sovereign, as a God who goes before His people and makes a way for them. And then having prayed and and been still and knowing that He's God, thinking about who He is, I can then go out and begin looking for a job. So when verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God, I don't see that as a command to inaction. When we draw before God in prayerful reflection and be still, knowing that He is the shepherd who provides for those who belong to Him. That time of stillness before God, when we remember who He is, and His mighty works on behalf of His people and through His people, well, it steadies us and prepares us for the activity that follows. But before I act, we must be still and know that He is God. And when when, when we do that, we are less likely to proceed purely in our own strength. So, fellow Christian, I plead with you, during these days, during this week or however long this lasts, before whatever is coming down the pipe arrives, I encourage you to be in your Bibles. Be seeking God in His Word. Be still and know that He is God. Speak the truth of who He is to your hearts. Study those great stories of the Bible where you find very courageous people, People like Esther, who said, I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you. The Bible is full of these brave people who embraced risk and who served in the midst of the storm. And these are days like those when we should be being still and knowing who God is, because I believe in the coming days, we're going to be called upon as a church to pick up the pieces, to enter into the midst of the mess that's going to be left by this season. God's strength is described in vivid detail throughout Psalm 46, both over the natural world and also over the nations. In verse 8, we're invited to come, behold the works of the Lord. And we don't have time enough this morning to even scratch the surface of all the ways that God has displayed His strength, His mightiness. How about speaking the world into being, for, for starters, or the parting of the Red Sea, or the resurrection? It's likely that Psalm 46 was written to praise God for delivering Israel from some specific threat, probably A military threat. So verse 9 would have had special significance for the war-weary worshipers who first sang it. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is the great strength, the great warrior who will establish a lasting peace for his people at the end of time. So I encourage you this week, and however many days ahead we have, in this time of relative calm, to be still and to know He is God. Get into your Bibles, be praying, and be enriching your mind with stories of His strength on behalf of His people and through His people. Lastly, we'll finish uh, here with the last thought, which is that God is a very present help in trouble. In verses 4 through 7, we read these words out of Psalm 46. To the people of Jerusalem, the strength of their city did not lie principally in their defenses or their secure water source or any of that stuff, but rather in its chief inhabitant, God, who made His home in their temple. He is the river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, they had God in a temple upon a hill. But we as New Testament believers know that God now resides where? Well, He makes His home within us. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And those words um, land heavy on my heart this morning as a pastor and just as a follower of Jesus. We are Christians, which is to say that we are sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus. We follow a man who willingly went to the cross and who said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. And if we are going to be serious about being Jesus followers in the midst of times like these, we have to, our church life and our lives personally as followers of Jesus, have to in some way resemble our Lord. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. In John fourteen sixteen through 17, it says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, fellow Christians, you are the temple. God, this river whose streams make glad the city of God, that exists within you. You have the helper who dwells with you and will be in you. And just as the ancient Israelites found comfort in their God who made his home in the midst of their city, we too find comfort in a God who resides within Andrew Murray described it this way. He says, It is to have a blessed home in the Lord, where I can go in and shut the door and I kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. In fact, it is often in times of trouble that we find ourselves drawing closer to God. I think my prayer life improves during times of difficulty. In the presence of God, we can obtain His strength, which can allow us to overcome any difficulty in our lives. We can take refuge in His presence, but we must never confuse refuge in His presence with refuge in the world. We have every reason to trust in God and have confidence in whatever we place in His hands, but this does not mean that we will find safety on earth. I think quite the contrary. The words of this psalm say the nations will rage. We will still suffer from natural disasters. The world remains full of very real threats, and we may have to suffer through them. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And this does not mean that God is unfaithful, for even in the midst of such trials, we can entrust ourselves to him and draw strength and comfort from his presence. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. To become a follower of God in Christ does not mean that all our problems go away. Of course not. And you are mature enough believers to know that. And you, It doesn't mean we can rest and relax in a good, long, prosperous, safe existence. If anything, to become a follower of God in Christ is to sign up for more trouble. Let none be deceived. Christians will experience and suffer the same challenges as everyone else, and maybe even more so. Christians and non-Christians alike suffer the effects of this fallen world. Yet the difference is that God is with those who call upon his name and follow his son Jesus. We have a purpose and a calling in the midst of times such as these. God has called them out from the world so that who he is can be put on display through them in the midst of their circumstances. God is our strength and our refuge, and in him we have a present help and future hope. Andrew, a moment ago in his prayer, he said that even as we proceed with caution, we can't expect for, that, for our calling to be completely without risk, and I agree with that. And as we have always said along so far through this whole strange process, I encourage you to comply with what the government recommends, isolation and social distancing. I encourage you to stay home and to uh, wash your hands and avoid contact with other people. Uh, But I do believe that there is a day coming where we're going to have to venture out I think for these days, this is what's called for. This is what's wise and good and we should participate in. But these are the days of being still and knowing that He is God. And there is a coming day where we'll be called upon to move out and embrace risk, to engage in a community that will be in disarray and wade into the midst of brokenness and need with the hope of the gospel and with our willingness to be a blessing and a help. Uh, In the coming days, I I went ahead last night in my office and I ordered a number of these little booklets. The book is called Risk is Right. It's written by John Piper, and I think I ordered 31 copies. And what I intend to do is this. We don't know how long this period is going to last where we're not able to gather together. However, I'm going to try and organize through Zoom or through some other online uh, technology. (laughs) The ability to have sort of a online discussion group surrounding this book. Uh, I like I said I ordered a number of different copies. Uh, it's a very short book. It's divided into eight very brief chapters. I read through it in about a half an hour the other night. It's very quick, um, but it is it's powerful. It's punchy and it's challenging to me to think about. But I think in these days it would be really good for our church to. Think through what John Piper has to say in this book, Risk is Right. And if you would like a copy, let me know. Again, my email address is joshbtate at gmail.com. Uh, we do have limited numbers of these booklets. So after they're gone, you might need to order some more, um, but maybe share one uh, between spouses, something like that. Uh, they cost about $7, so if you want to reimburse the church, you can for the purchase of these little booklets. If not, don't worry about it if you're not able to. Um, But what I'd like to do is, after we've had a chance to read this as a church, uh, I'm going to try and organize somehow online, and I don't really know how to do that yet, some way for us to uh, break up into smaller groups and have some online discussion about what's presented in here. So you'll be looking for some more information about that in the days ahead. Uh, But right now, let me just close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful to have you as our refuge and our strength and a very present help in times of trouble. And Father, I, I don't know what the days ahead, but I take comfort in knowing that you do. Father, we're ignorant of what tomorrow holds or even if there will be a tomorrow. But God, you know all things. And Father, I just pray that it could be said of State Road, like the men of Issachar that we understand the times that we're living in and that we knew what we were called upon to do. Father, today we, have, um, we are grateful for those who are in government. We pray for Governor Mills. We pray for President Trump. We pray for those in the Senate and Congress. Father, we pray for our elected leaders, that you would give them uh, a wisdom and a spirit of collaboration as they seek to mitigate this crisis and help navigate our nation through this difficult time. Father, I pray for the healthcare professionals, both here in our church and in our community. And Father, we do have a lot of health care professionals here at State Road. And Father, I would list them by name, but I'm afraid I would forget somebody. But Father, you know all of them. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would be with them during this time as they're on the front lines and are likely to be the first people to see and witness the arrival of the coronavirus here in our own community. Father, I pray for local business owners, those who are employed or unemployed. God, I pray for all of those who are feeling the financial effect of this prolonged shutdown. Restaurants and small stores and hotels and God, in all of it, Father, the community is going to begin feeling the pinch. Father, I pray for them. Father, I pray for us as a church that you would again just give us a supernatural awareness of the days that we're living in. What are you up to? What are you calling us to be and to do in the midst of it all? And Father, I just pray for us as a church that we would not be given to anxiety, but that you would fill the life of our church with a wonderful purpose, a mysterious joy, that we would proceed with a quiet confidence in you. And God, that we might be a blessing and a help to our neighbors in this time. Father, give us a wise spirit of caution. And uh, Father, but when the time comes, when we're called upon to act, I pray, Lord, that you would find us to move ahead with courage, and with a faith rooted in belief that you are our refuge, our strength, and our helper in this time of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace to serve the Lord.